In modern times, one of the most difficult issues leaders are faced with is helping those who struggle with mental health. No longer can we simply encourage a good measure of scripture study and prayer and expect everyone's life to stabilize. This is why Leading Saints felt it was so important to organize the Mentally Healthy Saints Library. There, one can find 25 plus presentations all about ministering to those who struggle with mental health. We cover topics like depression, anxiety, scrupulosity, or OCD. We even cover how to effectively refer individuals to professional therapists and make sure they are getting the help they need. This and so much more. If you'd like to review all of these sessions, we would love to have you do so at no cost. You can visit leadingsaints.org 14 and get access to the full library for 14 days. You'll also receive access to all our virtual libraries where we cover additional leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. Before we jump into the content of this episode, I kind of feel it's important that I introduce myself. Now, many of you have been around a long time. You're well familiar with my voice and with Leading Saints as an organization. But if you're not, well, my name is Kurt Frankham, and I am the Executive Director of Leading Saints and the podcast host. Now, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through, well, content creation like this podcast and many other resources at leadingsaints.org. And uh, we don't act like we have all the answers or know exactly what a leader should do or not do, but we like to explore the concepts of leadership, the science of leadership, what people are researching about leadership, and see how we can apply them to a Latter-day Saint world. So here we go. Let's get into this interview with Travis Ritchie. I've been waiting to have Travis on the podcast. I'm so grateful that we made this happen. He has a remarkable story of being incarcerated for something you may not uh, expect someone would be incarcerated for, but nonetheless, led him to jail, and he spent a good two years in jail, give or take. And now most recently, he, the church reached out to him, Elder Renlin and his office has reached out to Travis to help develop some content for the Gospel Library app. And so in the, in the Life Help section, maybe by the time you hear this, there'll be an incarcerated or incarceration tab that pops up there. And Travis was one of the main influences behind that. And so we go into the dynamic of not only helping individuals who've been incarcerated or who are currently incarcerated, but just the repentance process in general. How do we help and encourage people through repentance, uh, regardless if it involves jail time or not? And he just has so many mic drop moments in this recording. It's just going to be well worth the listen. And then uh, go check out the Life Help section in the Gospel Library app about incarceration. And then we're going to link to it. I mentioned this in the interview, but he did a full, more in-depth interview about his story over at the, the Cultural Hall podcast with Richie Stedman. And so we'll link to that in the show notes. Definitely check it out. But let's jump into it. Here's my interview with Travis Ritchie. Travis Ritchie, we're finally connecting on the Leading Saints podcast. Man, my dreams have come true. <laughs> right. Now, I first heard your story on uh, give a shout out to the Cultural Hall podcast, which Ritchie says it's a show in podcast form, but whatever. We can call him what he really is, and that's a podcast. I know he listens to this, so we're, we're giving him a bad time. But you told your, told your story there. We'll definitely link to it. But I also want to go into your story a little bit. But just in, in current day, like when people ask, what is it you do? Like, how do you answer that? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an investor. Nice. Any specific like industry that you invest in? Yeah, we have two that we focused on for the last little while, about 10, 15 years. And that has been real estate, small family real estate office that we have, just our own capital, and then small businesses. So I like to find the mom and the pop. I call them the solopreneurs. You know, like mom and dad started a, a pool cleaning business and you know, took it to X dollars in revenue and then just went, oh my goodness, this is, yeah. this is out of control. What do I do now? That's so, cool. And then yeah, you help okay. them get to the next level. It is. It is. Yeah. It's exactly what we do. Nice. And you're in the Treasure Valley. What specific city are you in? Yeah. We are just outside of Meridian. Okay. In Treasure Valley. Yeah. And born and raised there? No, not at all. Not even close. Just been up here, goodness gracious, about 18 months since our youngest was born. Oh, wow. Yes. Nice. Moved That's up a here. growing area. I don't blame you for moving there. That's no, awesome. No, it is gorgeous. The people are fantastic. 
The church is solid. The people are really, really good folks on uh, anywhere you go. And we came, my wife and I, a little bit of background. My wife and I have been married 15 years and we've got four little ones, 11, seven. Brock is 11. Kennedy is seven. Addison is four and Paisley is 18 months. And kind of during the pandemic, we were living in Southern California and just Melissa and I looked at one another and said, where do we go in 15 years? Where do we put our little girls in a situation to be around better people, to be around better dating prospects, to be around, you know, just good, authentic opportunities. And working for myself, we had the opportunity to kind of look at the map and visit some places. And, you know, by God's grace and a little bit of family help, we landed here in Idaho and it's been beautiful. We've enjoyed it. That's cool. Now you have a unique story to say the least. Uh, You've done some time in prison or I mean, how do you... (laughs) Yeah. 10,000 hours. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Wow. How does that usually come up? Like, I mean, are you like at a word function and being like, yeah, so what did you, you know, what were you yeah. doing this time? And you're like, well, I, I mean, does it come up in awkward ways or? I, you know what? I've been, <laughs> yes is the answer. Yes. And I have so many fun stories for you. You know, my story, I've been telling it for so long that I feel like everybody is just, they've heard of it or they've Googled it or they're tired of it, I guess is my point. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so now it just kind of rolls off the tongue, you know, so you'll be in, you know, I was in elders quorum a few weeks ago and, you know, the conversation of like, man, you want to talk about rock bottom? And I'm like, who else has been incarcerated? <laughs> Show of hands, please. Right. No, 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 no. Okay. So <laughs> I enjoy it because to me, you know, I, I love to lead with, hey, just because if you visited my Instagram and you've seen how pretty my wife is and how out kicked my coverage I did there. (laughs) (laughs) There's some real depth to this story, right? There's some super, super tough times that we've endured. And as a result of it have given us this just kind of zest for life. Yeah. So where does that, that story begin with? I mean, cause it's, I don't know, let's just get into it because I have so many questions as far as the the unique approach to it, because most incarcerations, like I was strung out on drugs got a DUI, was in a convenience store and held them up for cash. And then they got me, right? But yours is a little bit different. I don't have it. It's not sexy. Yeah. (laughs) They're not going to make a screen out of it, right? It's not fun. It's not fun. No, no. My charge for everybody that's super curious and has a phonics in front of them is transactions of an unregistered securities dealer or salesman. Right. So fun, right? And so now that we've lost two thirds of the audience, Kurt. Nice. So, I mean, because like, I mean, it comes across right? like it was a paperwork issue. It right? is. and- yeah, yeah, exactly. So you kind of go back. My story stems from 2006, 2007. Okay. And so I was running a fund, very successful in my you know early, early 20s, just came back from the mission and went the financial advising route and wanted to set up my own fund, raise my own capital and was doing so. And we had raised millions of dollars, millions of dollars. And there was this particular fund that we opened quarter four of 06. We closed it quarter three of 07. So it was actually in operation less than a year. That particular fund owed taxes to the state of Arizona to the tune of $3,059,000. Wow. Okay. And you knew this, right? Like you were going to get around to paying that or you didn't know? No. So here's the paperwork debacle is that when you set up a fund, you can either register with the federal government or you can register with the state government. These are securities laws. So with my Reg D, Rule 506 offering, I registered exempt from registering with the states. And so I registered with the federal government, which simply means I'll tell the federal government what I'm doing. They supersede you guys and life will go on. Very common, super common. Yeah. Very common, very confusing. And then you have the financial collapse, the meltdown, the great recession of 08. Uh Right. Which put every single fund manager underneath a microscope because everybody was in panic. And my dollars were large dollars that the state wanted. And so we paid that fine. And then the state actually indicted me. Wow. Yes. Indicted me. And this is where my education started. We fought that charge for six and a half years and never once was taken into custody never once was remanded to jail or put in handcuffs, never mm-hmm. once. And you know, as you're going to this court appearance weekly, monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly, and you do this for dozens and dozens and dozens of times, thousands of dollars in legal fees, the anxiety, 
all of that builds up to this moment when you're sitting in your living room with your wife and you say, whatever is coming next cannot be this bad. Hmm. I'm exhausted. just kept getting worse. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I was in a blender that I never thought existed. You know, I didn't take anybody's possessions. I didn't knock over a liquor store. You know, like you said, I didn't do drugs. It was quite literally a financial transaction that our attorneys should have taken care of. Hmm. Talk about accountability, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a very, 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 amongst many, big lesson learned there that everything, and how I live my life to this very moment, everything is my fault, good mm-hmm. and bad. Extreme ownership and total accountability is something that I is a guiding principle of mine. And I have this talk at nauseum with my 11-year-old, our only boy, Brock. I tell him all the time, your responsibilities are your fault. It really is a moment for me. It's a defining moment when I look back. And I could say, shoulda, woulda, coulda. I could say, woe is me. I could say that we did everything right. And I could sell you all of that nonsense. And it would probably be true, but I don't think that it would serve anybody. It certainly wouldn't serve me in understanding how to fix this problem. Yeah. So, I mean, with hindsight, looking back there, like you said, you were young, you're sort of, you know, ambitious and excited to do these things. And was it that, I mean, did you just not have that that mentor by your side that understood all these ins and outs? Or was it you just had a team of bad attorneys? I mean, and again, the accountability is on you, but I'm just curious, like, because it seems like you were so well-intentioned and suddenly end up in, in prison and that, like nobody wants that. Pretty wild, right? Pretty yeah. wild. Yeah. To answer your question, all of the above, you know, when you are that young with that amount of money, that amount of wealth, and there's a lot of people in your corner that just say, yeah, 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 go, go, mm-hmm. go, do, do, do. Everything will be fine. We'll fix that later. You know, there's a lot of accounting errors. There's a lot of commas that should be put in other places. But all of that can really be hidden when you're talking about millions of dollars, mm-hmm. you know, and you take into the, the account, you know, at, at the time I'm 23, 24, 25 years old, you know, really coming into my own. And there's a point where you have this monster ego about you because let's be real. I did everything that was right. I deserved this. Mm-hmm. There's a portion of us that says that in this church that yeah. we, we, we went on the mission. We helped the other people. We gave our service. And as a result, mm-hmm. this $117 million is deserved. Yeah, you were prospering in the land, right? Absolutely the land of milk and honey. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then yeah. it all goes upside down, right? It all goes upside down. Yeah, yeah. January 20th of 2012, I stood before a judge who served me a monster slice of humble pie. And interestingly enough, with your question, when he sentenced me, he actually referenced my entire pedigree against me. In what interesting, way? Yeah, interesting perspective. What he said was, because of the church service, because you were diligent, because you were young and talented and had these degrees, and because you were successful, because you had these attorneys, you should have known better. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I'm going to sentence you to two years in the Arizona Department of Corrections. Wow. And you went into that courtroom thinking, you know, yeah, there's an appearance, we'll get through it, you know, I'll stand before the judge and we'll go home and and look at the next step, right? But 100%. It's what we had done for years. Yeah. Six years, you said you were battling this. My wife and I would pull up to the courthouse, we'd put our money in the meter, we'd get nauseous, you'd get sick, you know, who knows what's going to happen, who knows what's going to be said, and you'd leave. And you'd try to, you know, go back home and not end up in the fetal position and At this time, you know, at this time that this fight is going on, life is still happening. You know, my wife is still finishing her degree. You know, I'm still running multiple businesses at that point. You know, you're still going to church. I'm front page news. You know, like life is still happening. And the crazy part is, like you said, I can't put my finger on that one moment. I didn't, I didn't leave a bar drunk and get behind the wheel of a car so that I can pinpoint that moment that I can talk to. I'm quite literally in this blender for years, Mm -hmm. just years of darkness. Kurt, I would drive around the city and just cry because it was so, I felt so abandoned. Like, what in the world is this for? What am I supposed to get from this? And I felt like I I was completely powerless for years. And so I went into that courtroom on January 20th of, of 2012 all of that got eliminated. All of that got removed. Wow. Two years wow. in the Department of Corrections, 17,520 hours. That was my sentence. Wow. Now, I'm curious just from, you know, obviously as a leadership audience, like there's, I remember as a bishop dealing with some of these technicalities of like, okay, somebody's, you know, broke a law and they're going to jail and, you know, that, you know, there's a probation state or even when they're still on probation out of, you know, the worthiness things that happen. Like what was, break down the dynamics happening between you and, 
your bishop or I mean, because again, it wasn't that you had this clear crime of like irresponsibility, yeah. though you own it. And it, it was a, you broke the law, right? Yeah. It was obviously, I don't know, I don't want to minimize it, but to maybe just talk us through that, those dynamics. Boy, you know, this was the first time that my bishop had encountered anything like this, mm-hmm. you know, because there was, to your point, when what you're dealing with is an indictment, which is for the people that are listening, is basically a one-sided argument from the state that says there's certain things that took place. That's it. It's not an admission of guilt. And it's not, it doesn't even deem you guilty, but it's enough to put you in a space that you now need to, to defend yourself. So it's a very confusing dynamic, especially for church leadership, because there isn't anything that was necessarily wrong, mm-hmm. but you're under investigation for potentially having done things wrong. So it's a very confusing space. And it was real confusing for me. So I met with the bishop, you know, met with stake presidents, and actually it, it got so confusing and it drug on for so long you know, past the bishop's tenure, et cetera, that, you know, area authorities were involved. And that actually was probably the best thing for me. That particular area authority that got involved was a financial whiz. Hmm. And honestly, by the grace of God, he was there at that point, at that time, to really unpack all of the securities language. I mean, you're talking about regulations and paperwork filing and indictments and I mean, these are four letter words, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it, not like I walked in and said, Hey, I got a porn problem. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. like that would have been simple. <laughs> right. So, <Yeah. laughs> interesting. Wow. And so, and, so I, and you were indicted like six years prior to you yeah. actually going to jail, right? Because you were fighting that indictment for all those years. Yeah, and correct. so, from that beginning, that first indictment six years prior, that's when you made your bishop aware of it. And then the area authority oh, yeah. got involved. Yeah. Yeah. And he was really like my guiding light, if you could say you know, to say, hey, I understand what's going on here and I can explain it. Mm -hmm. And so it was real positive for me. And on top of that, it was nice to have somebody that you could talk to at that level of the church to be able to not only understand your case, but to really just vent. You know, still, you put yourself in a situation where I'm a 25-year-old kid and I've got the world by the tail. And in the knock of a door, my whole life was turned upside down, Mm -hmm. right? That's confusing. How did I get here? What did I do? How did I deserve this? What is God supposed to teach me? Why me? All the things that we talk about, right? As a culture, yeah. as a society. And so those are some, that it was good to be able to vent that to this individual and have him, you know, steer me back on the path and have him give me his wisdom. A lot of those guys have been through a lot of rough seas. Yeah. What did they do? Because unfortunately, these processes with church you know, membership and whatnot, they can come across more legal than I wish they were and, and whatnot. So, I mean, was there a, a level of, I mean, did they take their recommend from the day one of the indictment or are they like, okay, it looks like, you know, Travis made some mistakes here, but he's a good intention. It's not like he has malintent here. So let's not worry about that. Or like, how did they handle it on the spiritual level? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly how they handled it. So that particular area authority requested handwritten or typed letters from all of the investors involved in our fund. And the way that they kind of shielded themselves, you know, as a church organization is they said, if we've got in writing that all of these people who were involved with Travis felt as though he treated them fairly and honestly, we're going to put those letters on file and we're going to move on and we're going to let the state do what the state does. But as a church organization, we at least can say, we've spoken to these folks. Interesting. Yeah. And that, you know, that was tough, Kurt. I actually had two investors who were former LDS. Uh-huh. And so to go to those folks and say, hey, this might sound a little crazy. And they were like, they didn't want to get involved because of their feelings towards the church. Yeah. And they said, why would I write a letter to somebody, you know, that I don't believe and da, da, da. And so it became a little bit anxious, for lack of a nice word. Uh (laughs) But it was tough. But, you know, it was interesting. It was one part of my humility journey that allowed me to go to these people with full authenticity and say, hey, here's the thing, right, wrong, or indifferent, you know, LDS, Catholic, FLDS, none of that matters. Right now, I'm a human and you're a human. And what I need you to do is I need you to put down any of the things that you may have think that I've done wrong. And if there is nothing that you feel I've done wrong, then I need you to say that. That's it. End of story. It could go to my mom. It could go to my wife. It could go to the Pope. That's irrelevant. But for me, I just need you to, to do this. And so they got those letters. They received those letters from everybody that was involved with me. And, you know, we had the opportunity to kind of put that church stuff behind us while we fought the state. Gotcha. So, and I would imagine, I mean, all your investors, what if, I'm sure you could approach someone and be like, wait, you want me to write a letter to your church? Like, 
like get out of here. Like they're not legally bound to do that. And so it was more of a favor. And so maybe some did, some didn't, or it was very tough. Took me the better part of a year to to convince everybody. You know, number one is a lot of people. Yeah. You know, and then to explain it, you know, because to people who aren't religious, like you said, a lot of, you know, some of these church disciplinary things can seem very litigious or legal. Right. That's confusing to some folks, especially, you know, I did have a a few lawyers and they were like, this has nothing to do, you know, with your ecclesiastical, you know, affiliations. And I'm like, yeah, yes and no. Right. And so it was, it was an interesting conversation for me to have hundreds of times (laughs) over the course of that year to help them, you know, understand, look, don't do this for the church or don't do this not for the church. Just understand that this is a process that me as a human and my belief set I'm going through and I need you to help me with it. And it wasn't the situation like, because you hear about, you know, affinity fraud or some of these, you know, pyramid schemes or it wasn't that that you were stealing money from them. I mean, maybe there's loss of money, just like all investments are at risk of losing money, but there wasn't a scheme that they felt like you were betraying them, right? Correct. I had that in my favor, I believe. You know, I could still go to these folks with with honest and even down to the sentencing day. You know, I had several people show up on the day of sentencing. We really thought that I was going to walk out that day and move on. Wow. Yeah. So during those six years, you're sort of going through that process as far as with your the area authority and whatnot. And you got to a point where it's like everything seems in the up and up here. Obviously, the legal battles in front of Travis, but you know, you maintained your your recommend and could proceed as a worthy member of the church, quote unquote. Um, Correct. And then, and so then you get to the dis the day where you get sentenced. So at that point, were you you went through the trial and everything in order to get to a conviction? I don't even know how that works, but yeah, no trial at all. So what had happened is, you know, I I, I told my wife that I was really exhausted and done that night on the floor. And she agreed. And uh, we were actually reading a book. And one line that we pulled from this book was, come what may and love it. Mm. And it was really something that we were trying to pour into one another at that time in our life. And so I was really on that path of whatever is next can't be this tough. It's hard to put that into context for people that are just listening. And sometimes I don't really dive into it. I gloss over it. But years of just mental anguish. Wow. You know, as you're pouring through documents, you know, trying to uncover Step by step, you know, I sat down with the FBI at Applebee's while they went through my financial records. You know, you sit down with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I'll tell you, Kurt, along that way, there was some victories that ended up not being victories. And so you get this false sense of security. And I'll give you one. After I'd met with the FBI, the regional office, they'd gone through all of my paperwork. I received a clean bill of health from them in writing. No fraud, no misappropriation of dollars, no commingling you know, none of the usuals, mail fraud, wire fraud, you know, a lot of the things that you hear on the news. Kurt, I cried that day. I got that in my inbox. They sent us a letter in the mail. This is literally from the regional office of the FBI. It didn't mean anything. Hmm. It meant nothing. It meant absolutely nothing. And so- Because this was a state battle. Right? 100%, yeah. 100%. So you were cleared as far as the federal government was concerned. 100%. Yeah. And so, you know, as you're, I'm just trying to give the listeners context, like, the pit that I was in for so long, I felt like I'm trying to move forward on one hand. I'm trying to build my life. I'm trying to help others. I'm still trying to hold a calling. I'm still trying to nurture my wife and be there as a husband as we're newly married. And at the same time, I'm drugged into court every three weeks under mountains of paperwork and mountains of documents and tons of scrutiny. I'm on the front page of the news. It's difficult mentally, difficult. Yeah. And so come what may and love it. And so we walked in, I, I told my attorney, it was about, actually it was about this time in 2011, it was the fourth quarter of 2011. And I went to my attorney and I said, you guys keep fighting. This thing's costing me $20,000 a month. I'm sick to my stomach every time I walk in here. I want it over with. And she said, well, we can put it before the judge and we can let the judge decide. We can, the state will give their recommendation. We'll give ours and we can let the judge decide. Mm. And she said, but and this was some really good advice I got from her that day. And she said, but let me tell you, let's do it right now because the judge is going to postpone it until the new year and you'll have the opportunity to spend the holidays with your family. Hmm. Really good advice. Hmm. And so we did that. We postponed it or we put the motion before the judge, you know, for the judge to decide, put our argument in, the state put their argument in. And we walked in after the holidays, January 20th, 2012. And that's when the judge sentenced me to those two years. Wow. And talk to me like, I mean, because so in that moment, I mean, you're feeling like you've already, you've had these six years, the six years legal battle and 
there's probably a lot of moments of that just feeling like a victim. Like, why are they, why are they coming after me? Like, I'm good with the federal government. And now the state government's after me. And, you know, there's all those excuses and, and whatnot, to, you know, or, or reasons to go to the victim mode. And, and I'm talking maybe in a broader sense as well as not only those individuals that maybe a church leader deals with who feels like they've been wrongly accused, whether it's a, a legal battle like you experienced or even like ugly divorce of like, you know, my wife she's done this to me. I tell her this and this and she won't listen. And now she, you know, she's demanding all these things and leaving me. Like there's so many of these situations of sort of shifting that victim mode where that individual has almost every right on paper to do that. Right. And so maybe unpack this concept of that full ownership and accountability and how a leader could help foster that in a healthy way. Man, such a good question. And so deep. So yeah, when I walked in that day, there really was no expectation other than I was going to walk out. And I didn't have, you know, I didn't say goodbye to my wife. We didn't plan for it. I didn't have the plea deal in front of me. You know, we didn't go through some of those, you know, typical things that happen in criminal cases. And so when that judge banged the gavel and said two years, my whole world changed, you know, and as I'm standing there in the courtroom, you kind of, my moment of coming to full ownership was when I realized that handcuffed was on my left wrist and it was so tight but I could actually feel it cut my skin. It was that moment when I woke up and I thought, okay, I'm built for this. And I looked across the courtroom, looked at my wife and, and told her that I would be okay. So at that moment, I realized that I had to be okay. Didn't mean that I didn't hurt. Didn't mean that I didn't feel. Didn't mean that I didn't cry, but I had to be okay. So I think oftentimes when we're talking culturally, like you asked, why me? I think it's so normal for us to ask, why me? I think we're not supposed to, but we do. And so one of the things that I did then and continue to do now and coach people to do as they go through difficult times is how to reframe that victimhood mentality. And so when I knew that I was built for a different purpose, but I was designed to go through this adversity so that I could come out on the other side and help other people, that became my guiding light. And so when you start to look down at all of the prophets that we, you know, we just finished the Old Testament. I teach gospel doctrine. I had a, a pastor who ran the same church for 55 years, and he gave me this beautiful quote about the Old Testament when I told him I was teaching it in gospel doctrine. He said, the Old Testament is the greatest collection of sinners. And so for me, what I pulled out of it and what I hope that church leadership pulls out of it, and I hope that listeners pull out of it, is one word that I could unpack for hours, and that's empathy. I think when you look down and you find somebody in a pit, when you look down and you are in the pit, when we realize that our God is not sympathetic, but he's empathetic. When you have sympathy, you look down in that pit, you shine a flashlight in there and you go, man, bummer, that sucks. You're in the pit. Not sure how you got down there, but hopefully you'll get out. When you realize that you are an empathetic individual and that God that created us, that Christ-like love that we're supposed to have, he crawls in the pit with you. That's how to reframe the story of victimhood. As you're in that pit, as you're going through the divorce, as you can't figure out why the cancer hit your family, as you can't figure out why any of the negative crap happened to you, you got to remember that Christ is in the pit with you. I don't think we own that concept enough as a culture. I don't think that we go to church on Sundays and look, who can we crawl in the pit with this week? Yeah. And what does that look like? I mean, maybe in your story or in, in other individuals that you've helped, like, because it's so easy, like, like, you know, I don't know how to crawl in the pit. So I just say, sorry. And, you know, it's, it's too bad this is happening. We're praying for you. But like, what does it look like in yeah. some like real, real examples of actually crawling in that space with them? Man, such a good question. I think it has to really start with wanting to help other, other people. I think for us as a church, being authentic is probably one of the things that I preach the most. I mean, it's so simple for us to show up on Sunday for two hours. We look good. We feel good. You know, we've eaten good unless it's a first Sunday. And it's so simple for us to judge one another based on how shiny our shoes are and, you know, how adorable my girls look in the pew. But the real grit, the real grime, the real Monday through Saturday that gives us the opportunity to show up and partake of the sacrament, that comes from understanding what people need from you. So I think when you go to bed at night, when you hit your knees, when you go, hey, who are the ministering families that I can help? Who are, my, who are the families who I may not minister to that I still can help? I think you have to be prepared to want to crawl in the pit. That's where I think you start. I think we just had that lesson from Sister Browning last week. 
and she talked about putting on her eyeglasses, right? Well, she had to have a desire to see differently. Before yeah. she put on her glasses, yes, she, she knew that she needed to have these spiritual glasses, right? That was the metaphor, her physical eyesight and her spiritual glasses. That was the metaphor that she drew, but she had to have the desire. And I think that's probably one of the things that we lack the most is the desire to crawl in the pit. When people call you, do you have the desire to be there? Yeah. That's what I think we have to start with. The desire yeah. to crawl in the pit, be empathetic and tell people, we've got you just like Christ got you. Yeah. That's helpful. And it, it, I th- like, as I've tried to practice this and really figure it out, there's almost this process of, I need to like leave all of my ideas and solutions outside the pit before I crawl in the pit. Cause it's like, it's easy to be at the top of the pit and be like, Hey, I got a ladder up here or a rope. Like, what would you prefer? I could call somebody, you know, and we want to, <laughs> hey, I've, I've got a casserole up here. If I threw down a casserole, would that help? Right. Like we want to do something and feel like we're solving their problem of being in yes. the pit. But there's like, there's something deeper and more powerful being like, I don't have the solution, but what I can do is I can sit with you. And the longer I sit with you, the more you'll realize that Jesus is sitting with you, right? And that's what ministering and fellowship looks like. I That's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Look at like, let's unpack Joe, right? It was exactly what you said with the first three friends, right? The one friend, right? Had the tuna casserole. The other friend had the, you know, the plate of brownies, but the one friend just sat. Mm Mm-hmm. Just sat and listened. And I, I'm with you. We, I don't know about you, but I'm a fixer with my wife. Sure. Right? Yeah. I'm a, a totally flawed human, right? Like she wants to come with me with the three problems before they're complete. I got like A, B, and C, let's go. And there's, we're on this. I don't think that that is necessarily the ministering component that Christ had planned. Yeah. Right? Like for us to honestly sit with folks, to really understand them, really understand them, and it's like when we have these opportunities, the, the thing that I loved about gospel and still love about gospel doctrine and teaching it was pulling the authenticity out of folks, mm. right? Like how do these scriptures come alive? That's what I think we have to take into the ministering component. When you look at, in my opinion, my limited scope of opinion, when you look at the way that the church has morphed in th- these recent years, three hours to two hours, come follow me, you know, home-based, home-centered, right? Family focused, minister, all of these changes. This is being willing to go in the pit with people. This is who's on your street that's having a problem. This is you don't have to minister on Monday night in a white shirt and tie just to check the box. This is Thursday, perfectly imperfect, showing up and just saying, hey, just had you on my mind. Just wanted to let you know I love you. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. And enough of those wins over the course of X days, weeks, months, and years, this authenticity starts to breed. And then people know they can count on you. And they know that they can come to you and they say, Kurt, I'm having a tough time. Mm -hmm. And you go, you know what? I got you. I'm not going to come over with a plate of cookies or the casserole, but sure as heck, I will cry with you. I got you. We go through this journey with an empathetic Christ-like spiritual glasses on, and there's nothing that we can't solve as a church. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. So let's pivot back to your situation because I'm I'm sure there's leaders listening out there who maybe have someone in their ward who just went to jail, right? And they're like, and I remember being that bishop, and, and it's sort of like you know you have clergy privileges, so you don't have to you yeah. can show up whenever and you know to the jail and, and get visiting rights or whatever. But I remember like walking that long hallway, the many long hallways of the of the Salt Lake Jail or whatever it was, uh-huh. and. Just like, I've got my suit on, you know, I got my scriptures. And I'm like, I'm, what am I going to say to this guy? You know, like, right. I just feel like I'm here. I'm supposed to be here. And and then I'd show up and, you know, you'd be like starting, you know, choke out some encouraging words or whatever. Like, right. So take us like, how do we go to the pit with individuals that, that were, that are in the situation you were in as, as yeah. church leaders? Or Such a good members? question. Such a good question. I, I, I touched on some of this with our curriculum. So how do we go there as church leadership? How do we go there as church members, right? Because, and to your point about my particular story, a vast majority of individuals that are incarcerated are there because of uh, poor choices and addictive substances. Right. Okay. I've never done a drug a day in my life. And so could you imagine, here I am in prison. (laughs) I don't even know what alcohol tastes like. Yeah. Yeah. And these guys, these guys are making it in the bathtub, you know, there's heroin on the yard, there's methamphetamines coming in from the correction officers. And I'm like, this is insanity. This is complete. Like, yeah. I don't even know what drugs you're talking about, guys. 
So it's interesting because I'm still in that same uncomfortable boat that you talked about. As I go, I typically try to go back in the prison on a weekly basis every Friday. It really grounds me and fills my cup up. And there I am talking to somebody. Oh, I've, I've never overdosed on heroin. I don't even know where to begin. Uh-huh. So I feel you on that. But here's what, I, here's what yeah. I have always tried to do every time that I go in. I have two things. Number one, I tell my wife all the time, I'm just praying for the one guy that prayed for me this week. That's it. And then number two, I'm trying to explain to them how perfectly imperfect I am. Mm. I don't need to meet you down here. I don't need to have put a needle in my arm. I don't need to have experienced divorce. I don't need because Christ fills that part of it. But the individual, the one-on-one, the human interaction for the actual church leader that's going into a jail or a prison is for them to say, hey, check it out. All my heroes went to prison. Jesus, Daniel, Joseph, all my heroes have been to prison. Okay. My argument for you is that if you think that you've done a better job than God can do, you should look at yourself in that six by nine prison mirror and tell me that out loud again. It is your opportunity right now to turn this mess into a message. And Mm. it's your obligation if you feel that you are created in his image to become better than you are right now. That's the only conversation to have with incarcerated folks. Yeah. And you as the leader or as the friend, the family member, you don't necessarily know what they're supposed to do with it. And we sometimes get in that mode, right? And I don't think it's our obligation though, Kurt. I don't think it is. I think it's just for us to go and sit Mm -hmm. and for us to go and walk through it and say, hey, check it out. I've never been in your shoes and that's okay. And hopefully I never will be. And I, I've never experienced some of the things that you've had. And I've never, I've never had the trauma that you've had. And that's all okay because Christ is going to bridge that gap. But what I can tell you is that if you want to get better in here and if you want to change out there, then you've got to be just like the same guy that I'm trying to be like. Yeah. And that's my counsel to you to get as close to that guy as humanly possible while you're in here and stay as close to him while you get out there. Yeah. That's the dialogue. Yeah. And is that harder to do? I would imagine like, cause there are those people who maybe everything's fresh. They feel like they're spiraling and it's, they're in that victim mode mentality of, and then they want that leader to come in and sort of say, yeah, you're right. Like this is such an injustice and you know, we, we should do things. We should have another attorney look at it or what, you know, like we, they want us to go to that place with them of just being like the world's unfair and you don't deserve this. Let me, is there a time and a place to take them to that place? Of like, no, 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 no. Like, let's not stay in victim. Like, what are you going to do with this? Immediately. Person? Immediately. Yeah. It's yeah. so uncomfortable for everybody that's listening. It's so uncomfortable because <laughs> here's the problem with it. It's the story that they've told themselves. And if we sit down with them mm. and we go, you're right. You know, at age eight, this happened and 14, that happened, which led to 21. And, and here you are, you know, I'm just so sorry. We're only going to further that behavior. The story that you're telling yourself, the story that that individual across from you is telling themselves is actually keeping them stuck. Mm. And we have to get them out of it. We have to get them out of it. You're not doing them any favors by embracing that story. None. No favors at all. No favors at all. So here's, so you want to talk about an action step. Here's what it is. If you're sitting across from someone and you just don't know where to go, right? It's not the Book of Mormon. It's not the scriptures. It's like, I don't even know how to relate to this clown. This is how we honestly feel, right? I've been there. I've been there. I've texted my wife. Like I've been in 4,000 prisons. I hate this guy. Like he doesn't get it. He doesn't wrap his mind around it. He wants to be a victim. He doesn't want to change. Here's where we start. Whenever I'm confused, I start with the end in mind. So I'll sit down with a guy or I'll sit down with a gal and I'll go, here's what it is. I need the story about yourself. I need you to start with the end in mind. Who are you? What does it look like? What does it feel like when you're out of here? What do you do for work when you leave? What type of dad are you? What type of husband can you be? Maybe you're not a dad yet. Maybe you're not a husband yet. What does it feel like when you are? I want to reverse engineer all of that. You know why? Because all of this will inspire behaviors. When you start to look at people, addicts have behaviors. Mm -hmm. Marathon runners have behaviors. You sitting as an ecclesiastical leader, sitting across from someone you may or may not relate to ever, the best thing you can do for them is to have them reverse engineer the plan of where they want to go and be. I promise you they'll all come back to Christ-centered events that you can then speak to Mm. as a church leader. Mm. But just getting them to that point of what does it look like, sound like, feel like, taste like, all in vibrant colors, almost like a whiteboard, a vision board. You've got to take them to a different story when they start to tell a different story. I go in prisons all the time and I say, look, a felon, it's just a noun. People place their thing. Mm -hmm. Just like hair. 
You put blonde hair, no hair, brown hair, curly hair. You put an adjective in front of a noun, it gives a little bit of vibrancy, a little bit of life. What's your adjective for your life? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to really underscore this this principle you're you're unpacking here because it's so easy for us as loved ones or leaders, we sort of default to the behavior because, well, the behavior got you here. You know, have you, you know, drivers, maybe you should uh, not go the securities uh, route, you know, like maybe a good mechanic shop would do it for you. You know, have you ever learned to fix it? Like, let's just change the behavior or, or change the, the direction of the behavior and that'll do it. But like, I go back to so <laughs> being that young bishop and all the mistakes I made. Like if I ever, if I ever had a chance to do it again, like that individual comes in, into that office with a pornography struggle. Like uh-huh. I'm not even going to talk about pornography. I'm not going to talk about the behavior. I'm always going to default to identity. Yes. Like if, if you can anchor them in an identity and then that propels them into a different story, then you'll see progress, right? Yes. Yeah. No, you're totally right. You nailed it. And so when you're talking to them about identity, do you ever have them start anywhere? Like, was it, are you a child of God? Or like, where did it start with you? Like real talk identity. Mm-hmm. Like for me and my personal life or? Yep. I mean, I, I often share the story of being the five-year-old in the Superman cape watching the Christopher Reeve Superman and, and like God was speaking to me like, Kurt, you are Superman. Like you are, there is something in you that can do a remarkable work, right? It was almost like this endowment in that for a five-year-old. He knew I couldn't go to the, the scriptures and read yet. So he had to come to me through the identity of Superman and say there's, and that's why I've got behind me my Superman cape, right? I mean, because this is yeah. so core at, at my story. And so when I feel that opposition in life, you know, and to whatever degree, I can always go back to like, oh, yeah, well, of course you have this opposition because you're Superman and Superman faces opposition, overcomes it. Right. It's so beautiful. Did you and do you share that while they would say, hey, this is the, this is the problem I'm having? Well, back then I didn't because I had no clue. <laughs> I was a 28 year old bishop that man that needed some learning to do. But, and, and, you know, I did I did my best and encouraged whatnot. But yeah, to me, that's where I would go is be like, let us find the let's find the identity to anchor to because being the victim in the story isn't a winning strategy. Doesn't help anybody. Yeah. It doesn't help anybody. No, no, it doesn't help anybody. I love that your story, it's so interesting. I'd be curious, as you've told that story, I'll tell you it does for me, so I'm, I'm setting you up a soft one here. What I've <laughs> noticed with, with my story, you know, my wife and I were at a, a table of 12 couples like a, three or four weeks ago. And of course, you know, somebody... Googled something or heard something is first time they've heard it. Right. And we're in small town, Idaho. So they're like, Oh, do tell. Right. <laughs> you know, coming from California, no big deal, whatever. But you land in small town, Idaho with a prison story. I tell you what, watch out. <laughs> Anyhow. So what I've noticed as I tell my story authentically, right? Like not the wall street journal side of it, but like the real, the raw, the struggle, Melissa coming to visitation, driving mm-hmm. five hours, the tears, the first time that she saw me, like it gives people permission, Kurt. Mm. It unlocks levels. That's the phrase I use with my wife. It unlocks levels of authenticity at that table. And people then go, can I tell you about the problem that I'm having? Can I tell you about how I'm struggling with my little one? We don't have to sit at this table of 24 and pretend that we're all just living the dream here in Zion any longer. We're now able to be authentically vulnerable with one another. And mm-hmm. I love that, Kurt. Like it, it inspires me to continue to tell the story because the more people hear about it, then they go, oh my gosh, I felt so alone. Yeah. And I wonder like with you and your Superman story, how many times you could take that story, maybe the person in front of you just didn't have anybody whisper to him or believe in him until they met you. Yeah. No, I actually had, um, I shared that with, with a group of, of men I was speaking to. And this one individual came up to me and he said, you know, because I always ask the question of when was the first time God spoke to you? Mm. And if people sit with that, they often go back to, oh, I was in seminary or I was a young missionary, right? And then I share my story of the first time God spoke to me was actually watching Christopher Reeves fly around on the on the television set, like through that story of a superhero and whatnot. And this one guy came up to me and he said, oh my goodness, like I, I had this great experience as like a young teenager and I was praying, reading the scriptures and I felt like God spoke to me, but he's like, I didn't realize until now why I cried at the end of Star Wars because God was speaking to me. I was like, yes, that's it. Like God is coming for us through that identity so early in life. And once we frame it that way and begin our story from that point, like it is so empowering, right? And my mind goes to, you know, in the context of like an elders quorum where I feel like if you surveyed 
the majority of Elder Scorns would be like, oh, we're like so desperate for you know authenticity and whatnot. And and every Elder Scorn prince, they want to facilitate that, but they're like, well, I don't got a prison story or you know. But <laughs> but like if we can create a scenario where people can unlock their story, like oh. like you do, right? You you unlock your story, and then others feel like, oh, that wait a minute, I can unlock my story, and whether it's two years in prison or five-year-old boy watching Superman, there's still like this identity component that's powerful. And I often tell people, if you can't stimulate that in your Elder Scorn, if you're kind of stuck, like invite Travis to come and tell a story or, or invite my friend Chris who had years of, you know, Chris Bennett who had years of sexual addiction and how he overcame it through Jesus and whatnot. When you bring that in and you model it, yeah. then suddenly people are like, oh, so this place is is safe to do that. And then you'll start to see that, that move forward. But Man, you nailed it. I'll tell you the the difference while incarcerated, the difference between the mentally free inmates and my friends here in society, I have so many parallels. Mm. You and I both have friends, acquaintances, family members, whatever, who go to work, who dislike work, who go home, are grumpy (laughs) at home, right? Like we can go down this list. And so I started to say to my wife, the worst prisons in America just are not concrete and steel. Mm. The worst prisons in America are this identity that we've we've locked ourselves in mentally. And the difference, in my opinion, is identity. You've nailed it. You've talked about it. When you truly understand what you're meant to become, you no longer like continue to seek these motivational quotes, like the the one-liners that your wife writes on the mirror to get you out of bed, or you know the cup of coffee to get you going in the morning, or whatever it might be. Like. All of the greatness that these people are searching for, whether it's in elders quorum, whether it's incarcerated, is inside of you. Yeah. I, we I have, love we have to go there, that. right? You have to. Yeah. You have to go there. Yeah. Love it. And because and it's not a, we sometimes default just in our nature that the solution is outside of ourselves, right? Yes. And we just, I just got to, you know, put a few more hours at the office or I got to, you know, like, I just got to get that gym routine down, you know, if I can just do that, right? Like, and those things are maybe important or necessary, but, and, and it's got to start with like going inside to where God is speaking to us, where we can find the strength sufficient enough to then face the world. 1000%. Yeah. True change That's is powerful. an inside job. Yeah. And oftentimes in these, poor Elders Corps, I always beat up on Elders Corps, but you know, we often go to Elders Corps and being like, okay, as an Elders Corps, we're going to present this lesson to them. And this lesson will then give them what they need, you know, to face another week or whatever. Right. And that even that is maybe above and beyond what typically happens. But <laughs> but to instead say, no, I'm, I just want to create a container where they can find the solutions inside themselves from that yes. gift of the Holy Ghost, which was bestowed upon them years before. Right. Yes. And again, I get that, that it's easy to write that down on paper and be like, well, there it is. And I get that's really hard in, in practice. But again, it's just that shift of analyzing where are we where are we leading people for the answer mm, it is so true man and i love to break it down when i talk in front of big audiences i'm like look the ability for all of us to be here right in this day this time this moment these odds you know all 10 fingers all 10 toes all that fun stuff like we're talking like one in 400 trillion yeah right the true odds of us being connected right here at this moment and so when you really start to extract that and you go, man, I only get 78 birthdays here on earth. That's my life expectancy. So maybe this elders quorum isn't supposed to, like you said, give them a pithy saying or a motivational quote to take with them. Maybe it's to tell them no matter where they're at, no matter what they're doing in that pit, Christ is with them. And so you got a guy right there who you can talk to about everything Mm -hmm. because he knows you because you're here at this moment. Like, that DNA, that greatness that I just love to extract out of people fires me up. Like that's why I go around and tell my story. Yeah. And if you if you hide your story, no matter what you've been through, everybody listening to this, whether it's the divorce, the addiction, the sadness, the pain, the anger, when you hide your story, you hide God's glory. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of that leader who's saying like, well, you know, Travis, I don't have a story, right? And, and to me, that's like, if you're saying that to yourself, now you have some work to do, right? Yes. You've got a place to go to, with God yes. and be like, all right, I'm ready. Uncover my story, right? And unfortunately, it's not going to just happen magically with, you know, 20 minutes of just scripture study a day. Like it, that may be a p- component of it, but to really create the space to go there, whether it's through meditation, whether it's through more temple attendance and spending, a, you know, another 15, 20 minutes in that celestial room to really 
commune with God. Like, but as leaders, like this is so crucial. There's something about story that connects people and resonates people. And so if you're leading an organization and you're not walking in that organization with a story, whether it's your own or whether you've moved on from your own, you know, sharing your own and you're sharing others, like to me, that's where the change component happens. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. When I really realized, so like my moment of change while I'm sitting there, there's this old book, Malcolm Gladwell wrote it. I think it's called Outliers, but he talks about how you have to, it's been beaten to death on Google, whether it's yeah. right or wrong, I don't really care. But he basically <laughs> says in order to master something, you have to spend like 10,000 hours doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it was a piece that I had read while I was incarcerated. And I remember writing my wife and I said, you know what? This 10,000 hours is my self-mastery moment. Wow. What a reframe, right? Right. What yeah. a reframe. And so when I go back to that judge who said on January 20th that he was going to make an example out of me, I said, you're right. You did. You absolutely did. And I'm grateful for it because now a decade plus later, you know, we, we inspire hundreds of thousands of inmates on a daily basis. Yeah. We write dozens of pieces of curriculum and my story's gone global. And I push everybody back to Christ. Everybody. Everything that I try to really extract out of it, the right, the wrong, the good, the bad, the ugly, it comes back to Christ. And when people tell me, oh, I, I left the church or I left the church for this reason or that reason, when I really pull out their identity, their reasoning, their God, their Christ is not my guy. Hmm. My guy is in the pit with me. My guy knows that I'm imperfect, knows that I'm going to swear on Tuesday next week. That's my flaw. He knows yeah. it. That's my guy. That's who I go to. That's my identity. Like when Moses, he came, you're right. Satan, Moses, bing, bang, boom, son of man. And Moses goes, what are you talking about? Son of man, you're talking to the wrong guy. Having that level of confidence, that's the story that I hope these leaders pull from this. And it doesn't have to be monumental. You don't have to lose a child or overcome cancer, or, you know, beat the Boston Marathon record time. I think that's oftentimes what we're looking for as a church, right? Like who's coming down through my ceiling? Kurt, I haven't had spiritual experiences. Morona didn't visit me. We all have the opportunity to be great when we start to unpack our story, like you said. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to move mountains. You just have to be passionate in the pursuit of greatness. And everything that you push folks back to, whether incarcerated or not, has to go back to what are you doing during these 78 birthdays? And is every ounce of your being going back to that Christ-like empathy? Yeah. Wow. Nailed it. Awesome. So I'm doing this all out of order here, but I want to make sure we we maybe unpack a little bit or maybe explain to us some changes we'll see to the gospel library that you've been involved in as far as incarcerated individuals. So what, especially from, you know, the gospel library, like so many things is, is so underutilized. There's so yeah. much there, you know, so much. And, and leaders should definitely, definitely be one of the cheerleaders of this app and what's all available and at least be yeah. familiar with it. So break us down, like what is the church trying to do with this section of the of the Life Help app on the Gospel Library and take us there? Yeah, for sure, man. So I'll go back a couple of years. I was, uh, I was playing uh, a couple of years, maybe a uh, year and a half-ish. I was playing on the floor with my two littlest at the time in their bedroom and I got a 435 phone call and I put it on speakerphone try to answer all my calls on speakerphone I'm in hopes that one day my kids will have learned by osmosis some of my business tricks. <laughs> Love I'll let you know. I'll report back. <laughs> I'll return and report. So anyhow, it, it was, you know, church headquarters. And they said, hey, we've seen your content. We've seen your videos. We've heard your story, et cetera, et cetera. We want to know if you'll come to Salt Lake and film the prison curriculum for the Gospel Library. Wow. After three or four cartwheels, um, <laughs> I put the, the phone back off of mute and said, yes, absolutely, right? I mean, why wouldn't I? Ran into my wife and said, goodness gracious, like this is what I prayed for. And it really is, Kurt, like I don't want to broad brush it. I usually, you know, I'm at, anybody who's met me, my personality is, is larger than life and I love everybody. And so I don't want to diminish this moment. I can go back for the, for the folks struggling. I can go back to having been released from prison laying in my bed in California. And I received a phone call from an individual and he said, Hey, I've got a buddy who is at church headquarters and they're, they're trying to put the scriptures on some of the prison tablets. Is it something that you could help with? And I said, yeah, of course, this is what my nonprofit does. I was on a sequence of phone calls and 
really cool stuff had transpired and we got the gospel library into the hands of inmates through their tablets. And while I was on the phone with this general authority, he said, you realize, Travis, if you'd never gone to prison, you would have never known about this and you could have never helped me. Kurt, I waited 10 years for that prayer to be answered. Wow. Yeah. Tough moments, right? Tough moments, beautiful moments. And so I fast forward to this same call. I've told my wife for years, like my reason in telling the story is so that I hope that I inspire the youth of tomorrow to understand that life is going to be full of adversity. It's supposed to be. And when it does get tough, because it's going to, you've got to look this way, not that way. You've got to look up and not down. To take this phone call, to have them see my curriculum, have them understand where my passion was, meant the world to me. So they emailed me, Elder Renlin's office emailed me three pages of questions. And so I'm pouring through these questions, right? I'm nervous. Let's be honest, right? I've been interviewed by everybody, Yahoo, Wall Street Journal, but you get this office. I'm scared. I'm in the field position. (laughs) So so here I am going through the three questions, three pages of questions. And, you know, they fly me down to Salt Lake and monster production, beautiful stuff. Temple Square, you know, underground the whole nine. I mean, really, really, really a spiritual, spiritual experience. And they opened up the camera lens. And here you are on the other side of that lens with the general authority. And he says to me, Travis, I want to know your relationship with the Savior as a young man while incarcerated and today. Took me about three minutes to stop crying. Hmm. And I said, that question wasn't on the list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I love that it started that way. And so I tell that story because that's how I believe the church is putting out this prison curriculum. The questions that I was asked that day were, were very, very poignant and deep. But the goal of this curriculum is, is a lot of what you and I have spoken about today. Mm-hmm. How does a leader deal with somebody? And deal with is a tough word. I don't mean that negatively. How does a leader love somebody who's incarcerated? I don't want to go to prison. I don't even want to go to jail. Why would I want to spend some time thinking about it? And then who do I call? Who's the right people to call for that type of a prison ministry? And so we went through and kind of established that subset of curriculum for this Life Help app, which will be available in the Gospel Library 2023. And I got a text message a couple of weeks ago that it's being translated in 14 languages out of the gate. Wow. Fanat- I mean, just such a blessing. So fantastic. And so a lot of this is me unpacking my story while at the same time helping leaders of the church understand the adversity that comes with this and then what they should really offer to a person that's incarcerated, not only from a resource perspective, but from a real life perspective. And I think sometimes that tough love goes unnoticed or unsaid is probably a better way for me to put that. I think oftentimes as an ecclesiastical leader, you look through the handbook and you say, these are the answers that I should have. These are the things I should say. But a lot of that tough love needs to be said to these incarcerated folks. They need to know that life is not going to be rosy when they get out. They need to know that it's going to be an uphill battle, but they need to know that it's also their fault. And Mm -hmm. they also need to know that they have some love on the other side of that fault. Yeah. And so a lot of this curriculum that we put inside of this Life Help app is exactly that, is me telling my story and then me offering advice to other church leaders and then some individuals who are in the church who have experienced incarceration, who for some reason, I get to be the incarceration guy for the church. I'm super (laughs) stoked about. You're the poster boy, right? I am. There I am. (laughs) That's awesome. And so this is the primary audience for this is just uh, church leadership, church leaders, and then maybe loved ones of those that are incarcerated. Yeah, it could be the loved ones. You know, this particular program, the first one that we put out, there'll be a volume two and three and hopefully more. But the first one is really setting the foundation. Like, what's the terminology? I mean, you remember as a bishop, Rick, what is, what yeah. is clergy? You know, why is it important for you as a bishop, if you're going to go and visit a jail, to know who the clergy is there, yeah. right? And religious services hold probably the highest precedence inside of incarceration, whether it's a jail or a prison, church is like number one. And so if you're coming in with a church organization, you can almost get in anywhere. And so why is that important for the people that you call? You know, and, you know, my advice is always, and I know, you know, different wards, different stakes, et cetera, but my advice is always to call the people with the greatest amount of perspective. Love it. Right. Like that's the people that you need in there. The people who've been through some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. So maybe tell us just your, 
variety of resources for the things you do, your nonprofits, whatnot, for the incarcerated. If people want to learn more about you, your story, you know, the help that you offer and whatnot, uh, where would you send them? Yeah, I would go to accomplishedventures.org. Everything can be found there. Our nonprofit is now in 17 states. We uh, host a weekly show where we go into 600,000 inmate tablets, and I just try to pour into them hope and inspiration. People who have gone before them, you know, incarcerated or not, who have just, you know, kind of been in the pit. And so I walk through some hope and some optimism on a weekly basis. Our curriculum spans the gambit. You know, our most talked about curriculum is going to be the entrepreneurship and the how to start a business and the financial literacy. And we do everything from mental wellness to physical wellness, you know, courage and everything in between. But accomplishedventures.org, that's our nonprofit that handles everything. And it's a beautiful opportunity for us to really take this mess, you know, that was caused many moons ago and give it purpose. I think that's really what I've tried to, to, to echo as I get to sit down with these folks incarcerated or, you know, at a, at a youth fireside is when life gets tough, because it will, you know, the beauty about life is understanding the suffering. And when you start to give suffering a purpose, it doesn't really become suffering any longer. Yeah. That's, that's the real goal of how do I extract the goodness from this life, knowing that with the goodness is going to become some really, really tough times. But when they get tough, I've got my story. I understand my identity and I know who's in the pit with me. Love it. And so that would be for someone recently incarcerated, that would be a good resource to point them to if they, they need additional help and whatnot. Definitely. Awesome. Well, we'll link to everything and uh, make sure that and we'll look forward to that uh, that section in the Life Help app. Maybe by the time this is published, it may be yeah. there. So people should jump on over to that app and and look at the Life Help section for incarcerated or whatever they decide to title. It. Right, <laughs> that's a politically correct term right now. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> nice. Well, Change last week. last question I have for you, Travis, is similar. Maybe what Eller Inland asked you is: as you reflect on your time incarcerated, how did that help you be, become a better follower of Jesus Christ? My man. So I would say, for me personally, I go back to the idea about bone marrow. I go back to the idea about a bone marrow transfusion and the DNA that we have flowing inside of us comes from Christ. Any way that you slice it, any way that you look at it, everything that I get to accomplish, the good and the bad, the highs, the blood, it all comes back to having a purpose in Christ. So for me, being a follower of Christ, I've learned that I have to go out and be fearless with my story. I have to tell people that elephants don't bite, that oftentimes it's the little things in life that start to eat us alive, the little corrections off course that take us away from our spiritual journey, little by little by little. It's not the major things. For me, it's the fact that you can't outgive God. While I was incarcerated for those 10,000 hours, I constantly searched for how I could serve. And I say this to people now, if you're coming up with a problem, a lot of people will call it anxiety, depression. There's all sorts of fun buzzwords out there. But I would challenge you to serve other people. The more that you serve people that following day, see if those same feelings come back to you of anxiety or depression. I bet you they don't. So every day while I was incarcerated, it was my goal to serve somebody, whether that was a letter to my wife, whether it was a letter to my future little ones, whether that was the cellmate next to me. Happiness is not from the end goal. That thing that we're searching for, whether it's the car, the house, the boat, the, the, the body, the whatever, that thing doesn't bring us happiness, but the journey does. And that's to me, goes back to the DNA of Christ. As we're on this journey together, are we looking for folks that are on the journey with us that we could be empathetic towards? Do we understand that our actions are truly rooted in greatness because we've got that DNA inside of us? And are we giving people permission from our authenticity to be their authentic selves? And if so, then you're holding some beautiful space. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. 
And remember, to review the Mentally Healthy Saints Library, click the link in the show notes or go to leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.